0: Solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry.
1: Thank you, Krista Christensen, for joining us at FNF Unplugged. You know, with your role as manager of cyber and wire strategies with the FNF family of companies. I know how busy you have been, so I really appreciate your time and talent today.
2: Linda, it is great to be here. I am glad to share whatever expertise and information I have to, um, you know, help everyone get through this. You know, there seems to be some confusion
1: or, or misunderstanding about wires. I don't know if it's the word or the concept. What does wire fraud really cover or encompass?
2: Well, wire fraud is just a very broad term for anyone who uses a telephone call or electronic communication in efforts to defraud someone that ultimately, and they're using that, how they're trying to defraud someone is by use of an outgoing wire. So that's really what it means. So basically it is when someone, a fraudster intentionally devises a scheme to defraud another person out of money and they use it by providing wire instructions what types of funds
1: meaning you know our hard earned money as consumers
2: are being targeted by these fraudsters Frosters are after all sorts of money and a whole bunch of realms, right? But what we're going to limit it to here, or at least what I'm going to limit it to here is real estate transactions. And in real estate transactions, really all money is up for grabs. Okay. So they will go after seller's proceeds. They will go after payoff funds. If we're paying off a lender in a transaction, they'll go after real estate brokers, commissions, attorney fees, things of that nature. But the most often, What the fraudsters are going after are buyers' closing funds. So that's the money that a buyer brings to the table or to the closing so that they can actually purchase the property. This money can come from the sale of another home. Let's say if they're selling at the same time they're buying a new property, or it could be money that they've spent years to save up and then with the entire intention of using that to purchase a new property. So why do you think they're the target? Why are they the target? Why are consumers the target? Well, quite honestly, they are the most difficult for those of us within the real estate settlement service aspect to get in contact with. And they are the most vulnerable. They tend to be one offs. You know, it's not like people are going around and purchasing properties every single day or even every other year it typically is a, you know, maybe their very first purchase or the last time was seven to 10 years ago. Because of all of that, they don't necessarily know all the nuances of what occurs during a closing and the fraudsters are going after that. So for example, they don't necessarily understand that escrow settlement service company, title company will never ask for closing funds before final figures have been provided from the lender if there is one. And that typically is between, you know, 72 to 48 hours before scheduled closing, things of that nature.
1: So unfortunately fraud and vulnerability go hand in hand. Yes. And that's a shame. Are you seeing these thieves take advantage of this pandemic?
2: Yes, they are. They are doing it in a a couple of different ways. But one thing to remember about these fraudsters is they are highly adaptive to the new situation. So anytime they have something that they can jump on that people are going to believe they are going to use. And in this case, quite honestly, all they have to do is say, mention COVID within an email communication or even a text message or a phone call and say, due to COVID, our procedures are changing. This is what you need to do. And people aren't even going to question it. So that is what we are seeing. We are seeing the fraudsters go after the intended victims, Earlier in a transaction, especially if it is a buyer's, and when I say earlier, I mean they are at times asking for all final closing costs to be sent to the settlement agent within, you know, a couple days of the file being opened, right? That is not typical. That very rarely will that ever happen. But that is what the fraudsters are doing, and they are saying that they need to and that it must be in the form of a wire due to COVID. Now, this is something for everyone to remember is there are variation of ways that funds can be brought into a closing. There are a couple states where based on the amount at issue, you may require a wire. Somewhere off the top of my head, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. But most every other state, you can bring in a cashier's check to represent your closing funds. But that is something that the fraudsters are trying to do. They're trying to say that, hey, we can accept a cashier's check because we're trying to limit the amount of documentation that's transferring between parties at the closing. And because um, we're trying to do
1: digital closings, people are getting pretty much aware that we're trying to do
2: everything electronically, right? Documents correct. as well as money. Correct. Correct. That, that's exactly what they're doing. They're also trying to, you know, take advantage of, and this maybe isn't for buyer's funds, but for payoff funds, fraudsters are using COVID to take advantage of the fact that a lot of lenders are hard to get a hold of. One thing that, you know, this industry, everyone is pushing is verbal verification before anyone wires any funds. And if a lender is hard to get a hold of, say, because they are working overtime on forbearances or even getting payoffs out because of the enormous amount of refinances that we're seeing right now, the fraudsters are jumping on that. So we all as an industry need to be aware that there's always time to step back and breathe. Any of these communications that say funds must be wired immediately, that should be your, your clue right there that something is wrong. And that is when you should pick up the telephone and using a known trusted number that you verified outside of an electronic communications, you should call that settlement agent or the intended recipient of those funds and verify where you're sending that money. So do it the old-fashioned way. Pick up the phone, right? Yeah, it's amazing how something created in 1876 can actually solve today's crime. <laughs> right. But yes, it, um, Alexander Graham Bell created something wonderful back then, and we can still use that as a way to help minimize this fraud from occurring.
1: So how does this fraudster, how do these thieves even know that these buyers are coming up to a date of a
2: closing? That's a great question. I think one thing for us to focus on is why fraud is the end result? That's the end game for the fraudsters. It's important for us to look forward and say, well, how does it even happen? Like you said, how do they get involved? And that happens through email compromise. What email compromise is, is fraudsters using social engineering schemes such as phishing, the use of malware, um, adware, things of that nature to infiltrate a transaction participant's email account. And when they get access to a transaction participant's email account, then what they do is they sit and learn. They learn things like, when is the scheduled closing? They learned who all the parties are that are involved in the transaction and what their roles are. Once they figured all that out, they determine who their victim is gonna be. More than likely, like I said, it is going to be the buyer. Then what they will do is they will start communications through use of what's called a spoofed email address. Now, I equate a spoofed email address to an imitation handbag. It looks a lot like the real thing. There's just some slight variations. Like, for example, instead of Krista.Christensen at FNF.com, which is my actual email address, it would be Krista.Christensen.FNF at Gmail.com or instead of let's say jack smith at ymail.com it would be jack smith with the white with the i and smith replaced with a lowercase l at ymail.com so those are just some examples of a spoofed email address and what they would do then is they would send that email pretending to be whoever they are impersonating and most of the time it will be the settlement service agent or the closing attorney or the escrow officer depending on what region of the country you're in and they will start a statement saying, you know, maybe a final document has been completed, and that funds will be, you know, needed for closing. They might say something completely unrelated to funds at all to start the communication, such as something regarding something that showed up on the title work and was presented to all the transaction participants, something along those lines. The whole purpose of the email is to get the intended victim to respond to that communication so they get sucked in, because as soon as someone gets sucked into a communication, they start overlooking red flags such as you know grammatical issues such as incorrect domain email domains and email addresses being used things of that nature. Um, and eventually the fraudsters will then provide fraudulent wire instructions to the victim and with the intent that that victim sends those wires as soon as possible to that account and this is going to be a mule account that is in some manner controlled by, the fraudster. Um, 99% of the time, it will be a U.S.-based account. And the fraudster is going to monitor that account for the minute that those funds hit that account. And as soon as they do, they will start their process of removing the funds from that mule account and sending it to other accounts, more than likely overseas, which makes it very difficult to track and to recover.
1: It's fascinating, isn't it, that technology is such a great thing in so many ways, but it could also be a really bad thing. I was sitting in on an FBI demo where they showed how quickly a fraudster or a thief can get into anybody's account, whether it's Yahoo, Gmail or spoof a domain like you were talking about. And what was very, very interesting is that they may not do this right away they may kind of bank this information until the right time. So they could possibly be ghosting your email account for months before they actually strike at the right time. They you're may correct. know that you're buying a house. They they can look you up on Facebook at any time. And you may say something like, oh, uh, we're searching for our very first home Well, that's an indication to a fraudster that, hmm, you might be finding a home in a week or two. And then within 30 to 60 days, you're going to be closing on that property. So there are certain social engineering tips that you're giving to these fraudsters.
2: You're exactly right. We provide a lot of information to people that use it for nefarious reasons without meaning to. But that's just... That's an unfortunate side effect of the internet of social you know platforms things of that nature and it is important to realize that anything you put out there can be used against you <laughs>
1: absolutely and even uh, your search mechanisms let's say i'm searching for that perfect pair of shoes and isn't it amazing how the next little pop-up ad on facebook or instagram is that pair of shoes? So that type of technology is being used in a bad way versus a positive way, or for you know, simple advertising. So that being said, Krista, how can consumers and, and consumers could be that buyer? That seller, that realtor, it could be that investor that's providing a very large, earnest money deposit, maybe to go to an attorney's office. How can all of these consumers, residential or commercial, proactively protect themselves and more importantly, their identity and
2: their money? The very biggest thing that we all need to do is we need to re-examine how we view emails. We all have this assumption that emails, especially those involved in a real estate transaction are legitimate. And if we just change our mind frame a little and instead assume that they're not legitimate until we prove there are, we would help protect ourselves a lot more. You would find some red flags. You would, for example, one thing you would do is if you saw an email purportedly from me as you know the settlement agent and you are the buyer, if you paid attention and really looked at that email address that it was sending to, that could be a big clue whether or not it's really me or not. One of the things the fraudsters take advantage of is the fact that most of us are reading emails off of a smart device. So when you read an email off a smart device, you actually do not see the email address of the sender. You just see the name of whoever purportedly is sending it to you. So that's a contact name spoof. They can just make anyone's name show up under any email address. And they're using that. So just, you know, certain little tips. If you're using your phone or let's say your iPad to read emails, click on the name that purportedly sent it until it highlights blue and then click it again. And then another window will show up on your iPhone or your iPad. That window will show the email address that it purported to send to. So for most spoofing examples, that would be enough for you to recognize, okay, yes, this really did come from Krista.Christensen at FNF.com. This is really her.
1: We're looking at
2: somebody's life savings, possibly. We're looking
1: at monies that they've saved up months and months, if not years. And in one bad click, they could possibly lose everything.
2: Right. And, and so that's one thing. We need to stop assuming emails are legitimate, right? Another thing is before you take any action, before any funds are wired, or even before you provide any sensitive information, via email, any other means, pick up the phone and call the purported sender. Always verbally verify before you're sending that information or before you're sending that wire. Okay, use a phone number that's not within the email chain. You know, Google can be your friend if you're wiring a company or if it's a company asking for this information. Google that company. Find a trusted number if you don't already have it. In the case of if you're trying to get a hold of the settlement agent, that good phone number should be within the purchase agreement that you signed. You can ask for your real estate agent if they have a direct contact for the settlement company. All of those little steps, yes, they take a little bit of time, but you're talking about, let's be honest, maybe your life savings are maybe... A whole bunch of personal information that let's be honest right now, personal information constitutes your life because so many things and so much is now associated with that personal information, such as your social security number, your address, your bank accounts. They can get all of that and can use all of that against you. So it makes sense for you to take that extra seconds and remember, don't act. First, you need to pick up the phone and verify
1: I was sitting with a group of Realtors not too long ago, Krista, and we were talking about how having Gmail accounts and Yahoo accounts that Realtors are using are vulnerable as well. However, as a consumer, you know, they don't have corporate domains that they're using. They're using their own Gmail accounts, Yahoo accounts, AOL accounts, and what I recommended and several Realtors... Are doing this now is once they sit down with a buyer or seller, mainly the buyers, because they're the ones that are bringing, could be bringing big amounts of money to the closing. They recommend with that buyer that during the time that they're working with them, let's say from the time they started showing them homes to the time of their closing, that they switch their Gmail account to two-factor authentication to give an extra degree of security on their account. This way, it is a short period of time. It may only be like three months and it does take a little bit of extra time, but at least that two-factor authentication may give you a little bit more security about the information that's coming in or going out.
2: That is correct, Linda. Two-factor authentication, basically for those who are unaware of what two-factor authentication is, basically all web-based email products offer two-factor authentication. And what it is, is basically anytime you log into your email account from an unknown IP address, which is like a geographic location from where the internet signal is coming from and originating, or an unknown device... When you enter in your login information, so your username and your password, before it lets you in, it's going to send a six digit code to the mobile device that's attached to the email account in question. And it's going to require you enter that code before you can gain access into the email account. What that does is that stops outside influence from being able to access the account because they would have to they would have had to clone your phone to be able to do that. And to do so, they would have had to be in close proximity. Is it impossible? No, but it's extremely difficult to do. And more often than not, these fraudsters are actually overseas. So that likelihood is very minimal. But I would go a step further, Linda. And just due to the fact that most people have bank accounts and things of that nature tied to their email accounts, I would say if you don't already have multi-factor authentication or MFA enabled on your email accounts... You should do it immediately and you should keep it that way. It's not that much restrictive once you've done it. Once you're fine, even if you get a new device, you have to do it. It is not overly cumbersome for the amount of peace of mind that it can provide you. I would say in addition to that, just as all email providers have you know, MFA capabilities, they also all have what's called email rules that you can manipulate and you can you can create for your account. You do have to be on a desktop to do so, but I would recommend everyone listening to every once in a while, check your email rules and make sure that there's not something there that you didn't create yourself. You can Google how to do it based on whatever your email provider is, and that will give you the steps on how to look up the email rule, and then you can, can see and access it And all of that fun stuff. But the reason why that's so important is because email rules survive password changes. So let's say a fraudster does compromise your email account and you just go ahead and say, "Okay, I'm going to change my password and I'm going to enable MFA there. I'm good. Well, if the fraudsters, while they had access to your email account, if they set up what's called an auto forward rule, they could still see everything that's going in and out of your email account. And they still have an open book to everything because what that auto forward does is it just auto forwards everything that is into the account as well as what's coming out of the account. And they can direct it to a specific email account that they have complete control over. That is just crazy. I would think in
1: this day and age, there'd be some sort of insurance that we can rely on. Is there any type of insurance, whether you're a company or a settlement agent or an attorney or realtor, or even any insurance for an individual that we can rely on?
2: For those within the industry, so settlement agents, closing attorneys, real estate agents, we all are required to have some sort of errors and omissions insurance policy could be called something different based on your actual you know, position and what you are. But typically, this type of fraud is not covered by the standard insurance policies. I'm saying typically because everyone is written differently and you need to look at the actual words within the insurance policy as to what is covered and what isn't. Typically, these fall within either a crime policy, a social engineering policy, something along those lines. So you can look into those if you don't already have them, I encourage you to look into them. The amount of coverage is probably not what we all wish it would, but unfortunately, this type of fraud has caused over a thousand percent losses from insurance companies because there really is not a chance of recovery. You know, it's hard to locate these fraudsters when we do most of the time, the money is gone, things of that nature, or it has to be parsed through so many victims that you just don't get a full proportionate share of the money back. For an individual, there unfortunately isn't an insurance for this. A lot of people look to their bank and say, hey, you know, this was fraud. Why don't you cover it for me? But one thing for us to remember is that this is different than, you know, fraud upon you in the fact that typically, let's say a credit card fraud, the fraudster gains your credit card information and then charges a whole bunch of stuff that you didn't actually ever order on your account, right? You find out about it and you submit it to your bank and they reimburse you for the funds that the fraudster was out. Okay, in that case, it was the fraud who initiated the charges. And this fraud, it's not a fraudster initiating it. It's actually you as the consumer. So the bank has a right to rely on actions that you take as an account holder and they go ahead and approve that wire and send it out at your request. So the banks aren't going to reimburse for this type of of loss. And there's no type of insurance carrier or insurance provider for individuals as the fact that determining the underwriting procedures for it is just impossible because of the lack of recovery.
1: Thank you, Krista, for that, unfortunately, eye-opening response. So if there comes a time when you think the worst has happened, maybe you think you click a fraudulent link. You think you provided information to somebody you shouldn't have, or maybe just the those hairs on the back of your neck go up. What should you do?
2: Well, it, and it depends on what it is. If you received a phishing email, which is you know an email that, let's be honest, we all have Amazon, right? I don't think, I don't know how you got through 2020 without Amazon, quite honestly. Um, More than likely, you've received an email that looks like it came from Amazon. The big phishing emails right now are Amazon and Apple related. And you'll get an email that says that they need you to update your information. And if you click on this link, it would take you to a website that looks like it's Amazon. And if you entered your credentials or your information, you actually just gave that all to the fraudster and not actually Amazon. So if that happened, you should obviously change your passwords everywhere. You should also check your credit bureaus, let them know so they can put that on notice. If you've actually lost money, you file a complaint for these types of internet frauds and crimes at the Internet Crime Complaint Center, which is ic3.gov. That's the website. It's part of the FBI. Think of it as kind of their intake process for all internet-based crimes. You can also go to the local police department if you, in fact, were a victim. As it relates to a real estate transaction, if you received funds, you know, if you received communication that you find out was spoofing, was fraudulent, you should notify the settlement agent, your real estate agent that's involved in the transaction so that everyone is made aware and you guys can dictate how to move forward in the transaction. If you fall victim to a wire fraud... As part of a real estate transaction, the very first thing you should do is contact your bank and issue a recall due to fraud. That is the very first step you should take. Then while you're talking to the bank, you should ask them to reach out to the receiving bank and request a freeze of that account that it was intended to go into. So don't be embarrassed. Don't keep it quiet. Pick up the phone right away. Correct. Time is of the essence. When we first started seeing a large number of these matters several years ago, it took the fraudsters about 36 to 48 hours after the money was wired from the victim account into the mule account before they could start siphoning it off. Now they are starting to siphon off those funds in less than 24 hours. So time is of the essence. So as soon as you realize that there a fraud has occurred, you need to pick up the phone, call your bank or the banking institution wherever the sender was, issue that recall. Make sure you do say that it's due to fraud. Ask them to freeze the recipient account. Then notify everyone else, like your real estate agent, settlement agent in the transaction, so that they see if there's any additional steps they can take. Then you should also go ahead and file that IC three complaint, like I mentioned. And I encourage everyone to print it off before they sent it off, because like I said, it's an intake process, so you're not going to get a response back. So I encourage people to submit it, print it off, then take it to local authorities, whether it be the local police department, especially if they have a cyber crimes division, the local FBI field office or even secret service handles these types of matter. Get it in front of someone because the FBI does have what's called a recovery asset team that also helps try and freeze domestic accounts when this type of fraud is occurring.
1: Krista, great having you here at FNF Unplugged today.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email FNFeducation at FNF.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.